Thank you, Dean, for that majesty. God is majesty. If you would take your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 1. That is something that you're going to get used to me saying. Go to Philippians, because we are starting a series in Philippians this morning that I've entitled All Things Through Christ. So we'll be looking at the first two verses of Philippians and the backdrop to the story of Philippi, the city of Philippi to which Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. So today's kind of an introduction for that. We'll start out in Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. A date that's coming up here real soon for us, October 12th. October 12th was an important day in human history. October 12th, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? But on October 12th, 1492, Columbus discovered the tiny little island of San Salvador. He had just accomplished one of the biggest events in all of world history, and nobody knew it. You realize that? What he did on that day, for a while, they had no clue the importance of it. Columbus actually went to his grave not realizing completely the history-shattering discovery that he made that day. It took several other explorations and many years later until the world realized just what had happened, just what Columbus had stumbled upon. I mean, this, this shook the history of the world, shook the future of the world at that point, and nobody knew it. Today in Acts chapter 16, we'll see an often overlooked event as well, but something that also has earth-shattering repercussions. And the story that we find in Acts chapter 16 will be important for us as we look at the book of Philippians. But before we go there to Acts chapter 16, let's look at these first two verses in Philippians and ask a few questions, kind of some background information that we need regarding the book of Philippians so we can understand it. Who wrote it? Who's it to? Where was Paul when he wrote it? These types of questions. So let's read the first two verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, our first question, our first background question is, who wrote Philippians? And it's pretty obvious there in that, uh, that first verse, isn't it? Who wrote Philippians? Paul. Paul and Timothy, it says. Paul and Timothy. Now, in the writing of letters then, the, the writer would also, would oftentimes write his name first. We do that a little different now, don't we? We sign our name at the bottom of a letter. But if you read through Paul's letters, you'll see that. Paul, an apostle. Paul, a servant. Paul, something to the church that he's writing to. And so that was customary practice back in that day for the, the writer, the author of the letter, to sign their name at the beginning. Now, it's written by Paul, but Paul has a traveling companion, which we'll see later in Acts chapter 16, by the name of Timothy. I think Paul did the majority of the writing here, but he includes Timothy because the Philippians knew Timothy well. You'll see that in Acts 16. He was with Paul when they went through Philippi. And so there was a relationship there that Timothy had with the Philippians. So Paul includes him here in the kind of the prologue to this letter. And then notice what he calls them both, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ. The servants of Jesus Christ. What a term of humility. Think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's a great man, did a lot of things. He could have claimed any title there, but he claims servant. 
Timothy claims servant, a humble term, a term that puts them as a servant of the church that they're writing to. Paul's writing here is, is an act of service to the church in Philippi. So who wrote Philippians? Paul wrote Philippians. Second background question here, when was Philippians written? When was it written? In order to understand when Philippians was written, we also have to ask kind of a coordinating uh, question here, and that is, where was it written from? From where was, was Philippians written? And those two questions go hand in hand. And there is some scholarly debate regarding where Philippians was written. Where was Paul and at what time did he write Philippians? But I think it's safe to say that Philippians was written about A.D. 61 or 62, probably while Paul was an, a prisoner in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment. And we can see a few indications of that. Let's look quickly through the, the book of Philippians. I'll give you a couple indications of why we think that is true. Chapter 1, verse 13. It's clear here that Paul is in prison. In 113, he says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places. Many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So we know that Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. Also in chapter 2, verse 23, he mentions that there's a little bit of uncertainty about his future. Well, if you're in prison, guess what? There's a little bit of uncertainty about your future as well. Verse 23 of chapter 2, he says, Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. Paul's not sure. When am I getting out of prison? What is my life going to look like after prison? So it's clear that he's in prison. Now here's the second part of that. It seems to be a Roman prison because of chapter 1, verse 13. Did you notice that? So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. Now that probably refers to the palace guard or what was called the Praetorian Guard, which would be a Roman group of troops that protected that area, those people, the prisoners there in that imperial prison. Then it also seems to be a prison in Rome because of chapter 4, verse 22. If you look there real quick, he says in the very closing of Philippians, he says, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. So there are believers in Jesus Christ that are in Caesar's household that in some way Paul had access to probably because he was in Rome. So I think it's safe to say that Philippians was written about A.D. 61 or 62 from a prison in Rome. And that colors our perspective of Philippians greatly. So let's ask a third background question, and that is why was Philippians written? Why now? Why here? Why to Philippi? There's several reasons given throughout the letter. Let me give you some of the practical reasons that we see in Philippians. Look at chapter 4, verse number 10. Really 10 through 18. I'm not going to take the time to read it all, but what Paul is doing here is he's thanking them for the gift that they sent. Paul's in prison, and the church of Philippi reaches out to him with a gift to take care of some of his needs, and Paul writes back to them in Philippians and says... Thank you. So one of the practical reasons that Paul wrote Philippians was to thank them for their gift. Look at chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. Tell us about a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. He was the one that the church of Philippi sent to Paul with the gift. Well, on the way, he got sick. And he has to stay there almost unto death, it tells us there in that passage. 
So one of the reasons that Paul could be writing back to Philippi is to tell them, don't worry, Epaphroditus is okay. He's recovered. And Epaphroditus may have been the person that Paul actually sent the letter with back to Philippi from Rome. And then one more reason, that practical reason that Paul could have written Philippians In 2 verse 23 again, he says, him, talking about Timothy, I hope to send presently. And then in verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. So maybe practically Paul is telling them, hopefully I get to send Timothy to you as an encouragement. And hopefully when I get out of prison, I'll be able to come back and see you as well. So those are kind of three practical reasons that Paul gives as to why he writes Philippians. But it's a lot more than that too. It's a lot more than just those reasons. It seems to be more so for their encouragement in the faith that Paul the apostle, the servant of Jesus Christ, can give to Philippi as he writes back to them and says, keep going, keep up the faith. Encouragement. Paul loved, and you'll see it through the letter as we go through it, Paul loved the church of Philippi dearly. And they loved him dearly. They sent him that gift. We already mentioned that. And as we go through Philippians, you'll see that unlike a letter to Galatia or unlike a letter to Corinthians, the Corinthians, Paul has no real harsh rebukes here for them in Philippians. He warns them about false teachers as he usually does. In chapter three, we see some of that, but no harsh rebuke. Nothing where he kind of brings down the hammer and says, watch out, you're doing this wrong. And I think it's a letter of encouragement, a letter of love to the church in Philippi. There's three themes here too that we'll go through, kind of setting the scene for this series. There's three themes throughout the book of Philippi that I see as I study it. Number one is joy. You ever heard that Philippians is a book of joy? Maybe you've seen that as a title. That's true. That's one of the themes that you see throughout the book of Philippians. Chapter four, verse four kind of summarizes it when it says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's tough for some of us, isn't it? Because a lot of times we tie our joy to what? Circumstances. Somebody said it. Circumstances. But Paul reminds us, attach your joy not to your circumstances. Attach your joy to the relationship that you have in Christ. In Christ. The second theme I see kind of throughout the book of Philippians, and we'll touch on this many times, is unity. Unity. Harmony in the gospel. We see that in chapter 1, verse 27, as well as several other places. But chapter 1, verse 27, it says right at the end, it says, stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We've made that our theme for missions conference this year. Next, uh, next month, first Sunday in, in November, will be our missions conference. That phrase, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's a message we need to hear. Teamwork for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not our own individuality to accomplish, you know, our personal goals, but teamwork for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that. And what is it, Paul says, that unifies us throughout the book of Philippians? It's not commonalities. It's not just things that we have in common in our life. He says our unity is in Christ. Our unity is in Christ, first and foremost. And then the third one, we have joy, unity, and I want to show you this, confidence. Confidence in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 6. This is some of the verses that we'll be covering next week in Philippians. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you 
will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can have confidence in what Christ is doing in our lives. Paul wants us to have confidence. Notice, and Paul will be very clear about this in chapter three when he gives his own kind of autobiography. He'll be very, very clear when he says, my confidence is not in myself. I've done a lot of great things, but my confidence is no longer in that. My confidence is in Christ. And that's important for us to learn. So joy, unity, and confidence appear repeatedly in Philippians. All of them find their, their anchor point, their center point in Christ. And that's why I've titled this whole series, All Things Through Christ. Your joy through Christ, your unity through Christ, your confidence through Christ. And think of that verse in Philippians 4.13, where it says, I can do all things. Not on your own, don't stop there. I can do all things. A lot of people do that. It doesn't stop there. It says, yet not I, but through Christ in me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things that we do in life are through, because of, and for Christ. It's important for us to remember. Now we have a fourth background question. This is answered for us in chapter one, verse one. To whom was Philippians written? To whom was Philippians written? And we see that Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So he's writing here to all the saints in Philippi. Now that, th that term saints kind of throws us off sometimes, doesn't it? Because you think of the Catholic church and some of the things that they believe, and they'd say that saints are a, kind of a special, a special group of people, right? A special collection of people that have done certain things. Or we think, oh, it's talking to football players in New Orleans, right? But no, saints here is believers in Jesus Christ. It's always that way. It's not a special distinction of people. It is believers. So today we have what gathered here? Saints. So maybe on the way out, you know, you can greet uh, St. Harold or St. Ron or something. It sounds a little goofy though, doesn't it? Sounds a little goofy to say that, but it would be accurate. You want that to happen, Harold? Ron? Okay, she says, she says sure. But we are, we're all saints. We're saints in the Lord, right? Believers in Jesus Christ. And that's who he is writing to here in Philippi, the people who are gathered, the believers who are gathered in Philippi. Now, these people were not strangers to Paul. This is important for us to remember. They were not strangers. Paul had had personal contact with them on his second missionary journey. I've got a couple pictures I'm put on the screen because we're, we're talking background here. We're talking about Philippi and where Philippi is. If you can throw that first picture up there, here's the Mediterranean Sea on the bottom, and you see Philippi there. You've got over to your left, you've got Israel and all of that, where Paul would have come from. And then Philippi is just across into what we would call Macedonia, or it's really Eastern Europe. All right, that'll come up a little bit later as well, but just over into Eastern Europe. And the city of Philippi was located in a very strategic position right along what was called the Ignatian Way. Flash that next picture up there. This is the road, one of the most important roads, east and west road, through the Roman Empire. And Philippi is located right along that highway. All right, you can kind of see that road there on the right. It doesn't look like much of a road, but trust me, at one point, it was a road. And throw the next picture up there. Philippi, this is some of the ancient uh, ruins of Philippi. And now Philippi is, has been great for archaeological discoveries. 
a lot of the city is left there to get a lot of information about Philippi. So here's kind of an aerial view of the ancient city of Philippi. So that kind of gives you an idea of, of where it sits in the world. Originally, Philippi was started because it was, it was conquered, that area was conquered by Philip II of Macedonia. This is about 4th century BC, and you say Philip II, which is the namesake for Philippi, he named it after himself. Philip II, you know, I don't really realize who that is, I don't know who that is. Well, you know his son, I'm sure you know his son, Alexander the Great conquers that area then as well after his father, and it's a Greek colony originally, but in the second century BC, it becomes a Roman colony. The Roman Empire comes in, and Philippi becomes a very important Roman city. And in 42 BC, an important Roman battle took place there. 42 BC, the Battle of Philippi, as it was called, between the Roman forces of Octavian and Antony and the defenders of the Roman Republic, Brutus, and Cassius meet at Philippi, two battles. Octavian and Antony are victorious, ending the Roman Republic. The Brutus and Cassius, the, the murderers of Julius Caesar, they're trying to form the Roman Republic, but the Roman Empire is victorious. And so Philippi becomes, or comes under the domination of the Roman Empire and becomes what some people called at that time, Little Rome a very heavily influenced Roman city. And that'll be important for us here in a little bit as well. If you would, go to your Bibles to Acts 16. Let's see the backdrop of Philippi, the city, and a little bit about the early church there in Philippi. I have a picture here of Paul's journey into his second missionary journey in which he goes through Philippi. And that's where we pick it up in Acts 16. You can see that. I know it might be a little bit small for you. But that arrow going from Israel over there, from Antioch, and he goes into uh, Galatia, into Asia there, and then also into Philippi. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 16, Acts 16. He makes his first appearance in Philippi, but before that, he picks up Timothy. First few verses in chapter 16, he picks up Timothy and Derby and Lystra, a man of, of faith, a young man of faith that he'll talk about in the book of Philippians. And Paul and his companions in verse 6, they, they'd kind of finished up their ministry in that area of Galatia, and they wanted to go into the rest of Asia but they were stopped. Look at this, verse six. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. They wanted to go a certain way, but the Holy Spirit said, no, I've got a different plan for you. Verse eight, they passing by Mysia came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. So here's Paul. He has this vision of a man calling him over into Macedonia. And Paul says, there's a reason that he's calling me over there. This is from the spirit of God. And the reason was, I get an opportunity to preach the gospel in Macedonia. So they go from Troas, they go through Neapolis, and they end up in Philippi. Look at verse 11. 
Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and the colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. So here, here's Paul. He enters into Philippi. He's hanging out there for a few days. And then the Sabbath day comes. Now, Paul's custom, as you see in, in the book of Acts, when he would go into a new city, he would often go on the Sabbath day to the synagogue, meet with the religious leaders, have an opportunity to teach. He's the, he's the traveling evangelist, the traveling teacher. They would have him in the synagogue to teach. But he doesn't do that in Philippi. He doesn't do that. Look at verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Say, well, why did, he break, why did he break tradition here? Why did he break his custom? going into the synagogue? Well, the easy answer is probably there wasn't a synagogue. Remember I said Philippi was a very heavily Roman-influenced city? And so I don't think there was a big population of Jews there in Philippi at this time. And in order to establish a synagogue, according to Jewish law and custom, there had to be 10 heads of household in order to establish a synagogue in a new city. And so they probably didn't have the requisite number of heads of household in order to start a synagogue. So Paul here, knowing that God has called him to preach the gospel, he diverts a little bit and God uses him in a different way. It says he goes outside the city to a riverbank. And here we have the beginnings of the church in Philippi. Paul's missionary journey, his second missionary journey was about AD 50. And you say, wow, this is about as insignificant as it can be. It's true. Paul with a couple women down by the riverside, and that's the beginning? Yeah, it's the beginning. About AD 50, yet what seems insignificant here is monumental in the course of world history. This is akin to Columbus discovering the new world. And you say, well, I don't understand. I'm just not seeing it yet. Going down to a riverbank, it's, it's, it's just not coming to me. When Paul lands in Philippi and he meets these women by the riverside, and he preaches the gospel to them. This is the first time that the gospel entered the continent of Europe. Possibly, quite possibly, the most influential continent in world history. And this is where it gets its start. Paul, outside the city, with a few women who are praying, and he shares the gospel with them. This is huge. This is huge in world history as the gospel comes into Europe. Because you, you know back through world history, the influence that Christianity had in Europe, the offshoots and some of the cults and things that came out of that, and the influence that that had in Europe, and then also in our part of the world as well. This is huge. It starts here. He goes out beside a river outside of town where no one takes any notice. Here's the glorious entrance of the gospel into Europe. And it comes through a crack in the back door. There's a lesson here for us. Don't miss this. Don't overlook the significance of the insignificant. Don't overlook the significance of the insignificant because that's how God loves to work. You may think I'm insignificant, and guess what? We are. Yet God loves to work through people who are insignificant. He uses, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1, it says he uses the weak things of the world to accomplish things that are mighty. 
in his plan. And here he's about to do this with this little tiny group of people in Philippi, starting by a riverside on the outskirts of town where nobody cares. I wanna show you three things about the church at Philippi this morning. Three things that I hope will be an encouragement to us to keep on going, to keep the faith of Jesus Christ. Number one, a beginning church. Every church has to start somewhere, right? A beginning church. The start of the church in Philippi, look at verse 13. It says, on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside. There's a picture here of the river that they went to, the Ganges River, and it's pretty insignificant. To me, it's a little generous to call it a river. It's more like a creek, right? I'm sorry, creek, however you say it up here, right? It's just, it's just tiny. It's just little. It doesn't matter. Yet by this river is where the gospel is introduced into Europe. Probably the most humble beginnings that a church will ever have. Sabbath, we went out of the city, verse 13, by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. We sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Here's this group of women down by the riverside, and we don't really know much about their background or their history. They're going there to pray. So they have some sort of knowledge, apparently a knowledge of God, yet they don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ yet. And Paul shows up here and he begins to teach them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He begins to share with them about Christ. And it says that the Lord opens the heart of Lydia. Opens the heart of Lydia so that she believes the gospel. Now notice it's not just her. Verse 15, when she was baptized and her household, so her household also gets saved, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So here, not only Lydia, her whole household believed. We could probably safely assume there are a few other ladies there at the riverside that also believed. And here we have the beginnings of Riverside Church of Philippi. That's what I would name it if I was naming, it, naming the Church of Philippi. Riverside Church. Does that make sense? The very beginnings of the Church of Philippi, a few women that trust in Jesus Christ. You say, well, they didn't have a building. They hadn't put together a budget yet. Well, you're right, they hadn't. But the church is not a building. It's not a budget. It is the people of Jesus Christ. And the church is beginning to take root here because there are believers now in Philippi. There were saints in Philippi and the church could form here. Now, verse 15, Lydia invites Paul and his companions to stay in her family's house. And you think of Lydia, it gives us, she's the only one that it gives us really anything about. It says that she's a seller of purple cloth, which was a very expensive material in that day. So we can assume that Lydia probably had a nice size house, probably was a wealthy and somewhat influential person because of her occupation, her business there. And she invites Paul over. It also shows up in, in verse 40 that the brethren are meeting in Lydia's house. So that may have been the first meeting place of Riverside Church of Philippi. They're getting their start here just in the infancy stages of the church. But there's always that, right? With every good thing comes opposition. 
The church is just starting. There's a little bit of traction there. We're growing. We're, we're gathering believers. We're meeting in Lydia's house. And then Satan hates it. He hates the founding of the church of Philippi, and he's going to do whatever he can to destroy it because the gospel is going out. So I showed you first a beginning church. Now from verse 16 on, a surviving church. A surviving church. Look at verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried saying, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul being grieved turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. So here the church is just getting started. One day shortly thereafter, Paul and Silas are on their way to prayer meeting through the town and this girl keeps harassing them, yelling out insults and invectives towards them. Did you notice what she said at the end of verse 17? These men are the servants of the most high God which show unto us the way of salvation. She was saying that mockingly, but what she was saying was actually the truth. Yet Paul shuts it down, why? because it's the wrong messenger in the wrong way. And that matters. Verse 18, Paul says, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of this. Because it happened many days, it says. And he turns around and he casts the demon out of the girl. Say, okay, problem averted. We're good. The demon's out of the girl. She's not yelling at us anymore. The church in Philippi can continue. Everything's fine, right? Wrong. Look at the next verse, 19. And when our masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers, brought them to the magistrates, saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. The multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. This girl caused a lot of problems because once the demon was out of her, the people that owned her lost all their money. She had brought them a lot of money and they were upset. So they falsely accused Paul and Silas. You notice what they said? These men are troubling our city. False accusation. What had Paul and Silas done? But notice the rest of the accusation. It says, verse 21, they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive. What was that all about? What were the customs that Paul and Silas were teaching that it says there at the end of verse 21 being Romans? There was something that was rubbing them the wrong way, and I bet it was this. Paul and Silas declared there is one God and there is one Savior, and neither one of them is Caesar. Because as Romans, Caesar was in essence, God. And they come along and they say, no, 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 it's not that way. And so they're a little upset about this. They take Paul, they take Silas, they mercilessly beat them and condemn them to prison. That's a way to start a church, right? What a way to start a church. Get thrown in prison, not necessarily the startup techniques that we would uh, think of in 21st century America, right? Anybody want to go with me? We'll start a church in Philippi? Nobody? Yeah, that's tough. 
I want you to keep in mind something here. Paul and Silas, they've been through this type of thing before. But who hadn't been through this before? Who's watching this as Paul and Silas are getting beaten and thrown in prison? The new Christians of Philippi. These fledgling believers just getting started. They're watching all of this unfold. And what must they be thinking to themselves? Right? They see Paul and Silas beaten and hauled off for teaching what they have just believed in. What's going through their minds? Maybe a question like, well, is this what it means to follow Christ? What did we sign ourselves up for? You know, they're talking to each other. Are we going to get treated in the same way that Paul and Silas are going to be treated? I don't know. Is, Is Christ and the gospel worth it? Is it worth what Paul and Silas are going through? You've got these new, brand new baby Christians watching Paul and Silas suffer for the sake of the gospel. They've got to be questioning what, they're, what they've gotten into. Now, this next part of the story you know well. Verse 23, they laid many stripes upon them and they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison, made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Here's Paul and Silas, they're in prison, yet they sing praise. They sing praise to God. In verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. Now you answer this question, are earthquakes good or bad? They're always bad. Always bad. The destruction that comes. Yet notice the power of God. He takes something that's bad, as he does often in our lives as well, and he chooses to use it for good. Through the earthquake... Paul and Silas are freed. The the keeper of the prison, the jailer, comes down. Remember the story? He's about to kill himself. Paul says, don't, don't, don't harm yourself. The man drops down on his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds in verse 31 with probably the clearest summary of belief in Christ. The man is before him. He says, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's about as clear and precise as it gets. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That same statement is true for us today. I don't know who all's here today. I don't know your relationship with Jesus Christ, but I can tell you this. Without believing in Christ, you will perish in your sins. Paul says, believe in Christ. And the same is true for us today. You must believe in Christ. Not just that he exists, not just that he was some historical character, but that he died for your sins, was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Believe in Christ, if you never have, for forgiveness of your sins. The jailer does. You know the rest of the story, right? The jailer and his whole household believes. Say, what a story. What a story of God's goodness working through a bad situation like an earthquake and bringing all this good around. But my question is this, will the new church at Philippi survive all this? The persecution that they've witnessed, the demon-possessed girl, the earthquake, and all that's happening in the city of Philippi at their infancy, will they survive? Think about it. Verse 40, Paul leaves town. He's on to the next place. He goes on to Thessalonica. But who has to stay behind? 
the people in Philippi. Paul gets to leave, but the new Philippian Christians, they have to stay behind and deal with the same people, the same government, and the same demons that already tried to ruin them. Would the church at Philippi survive or would it crumble under this strain? That's the question. Say it's a tough environment to live in and think there's only a few people at this time in the church of Philippi. Only a few believers. And you look at those believers, who are they? Lydia's family, the jailer's family, probably a couple others that have been brought in some way, way possibly the formerly demon-possessed girl. You say, well, that's not, not really the best and brightest of society. How are they going to make it? Will they make it? Well, we have the answer in Scripture. We showed a beginning church, a surviving church, and I want to show you thirdly, a thriving church, a thriving church. The answer, will they make it? Yes, they did. They made it. They survived. And not only did they just barely survive, they thrived. They thrived. It was about AD 50, we said, that Paul on his second missionary journey went to Philippi. It was about AD 61 or 62 that Paul writes the letter of Philippians back to Philippi, which proves what? They were still around. They made it. The epistle to the Philippians that we hold in our hands today is proof that the church at Philippi survived. And I tell you, that's encouragement to us that Christ is building his church. And as we read in our scripture reading, Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 10 years later, Paul writes back to the Philippians and he says, I love you from the bottom of my heart. Here's encouragement in the Lord. You've made it. And not only are you surviving, you are thriving. You say, why? How did the church at Philippi thrive in all these circumstances? Here's the reason. The people of the church immediately started being the church. And I understand, you're talking in riddles. The people of the church of Philippi immediately started being the church of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be the church of Jesus Christ? I wanna show you in Acts 16 and following what the church of Philippi did. In chapter 16, verse 15, Lydia has just received the gospel and she immediately does what? Shows hospitality and care for Paul and his companions. The gospel had made a difference in her heart. She immediately puts into practice the care for one another's of scripture. The jailer, verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. He takes them into the, his house. Having been, immediately con, er, having been converted, he immediately shows care and consideration for the brethren of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 40. Paul leaves the prison. They went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. The church of Philippi had started to gather together. They immediately show care for one another. They gather together. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul commends the churches in Macedonia, of which Philippi would be a part. He commends them for their kindness and their generosity to the suffering saints in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was getting smashed with persecution at this time. And it was Philippi and some surrounding churches that sent them a gift to provide for their basic needs. Part of Paul's writing in Philippians, remember that I said earlier, that part, part of Paul's writing in Philippians was to thank them for their gift to him. Here's the church in Philippi acting like the church. 
the church of Jesus Christ. Church history tells us that 50 years later after the founding of Philippi, one of the church fathers named Ignatius is imprisoned by Rome and they're taking him to trial in Rome. And he stops by in the church in Philippi under imprisonment, the church of Philippi cares for his needs and he was refreshed and encouraged on his way to trial. The church in Philippi 50 years later is still acting as the church. It was still going strong. When these Philippians got the gospel, they got it good. They got the gospel good and it motivated them to endure hardship. It motivated them to express the kindness and grace that the gospel is supposed to cause us to do. And that's a 2000 year old lesson from the church of Philippi that we need to learn today that the gospel in our hearts motivates us to act as the church. And I tell you this, in a world that says, be yourself, and we hear that a lot, be yourself, be yourself, do you, do you. No, the world tells us, be yourself. And I ask us to be the church, to be the church of Jesus Christ, a church that withstands Satan's attacks as Philippi did, a church that boldly proclaims the name of Christ and a church that cares for one another in the church. Be the church. When Paul writes Philippians back to them, about 10 to 12 years later, he writes to a church that is not just surviving, but they are thriving. And it was a church that Paul loved and a church that loved Paul dearly. Now, were they perfect? No church is. If you find a perfect church, run. No church is perfect, but the church of Philippi understood and acted on the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were a local body that was part of the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. Remember from our scripture reading earlier, Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It doesn't matter if it's persecution, pandemics, or politicians. The church of Jesus Christ marches on. Christ has promised that to us in his word. It's a 2,000-year-old promise that includes every single one of us today. That's encouragement. We live in a rough world, don't we? But the church of Jesus Christ will never succumb to the world that we live in. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray.